As we return this evening to our series through Revelation, we're coming back, if you recall from the last few weeks, to a frozen point in time when it comes to the end time timeline of events. We, we followed the flow of Revelation through two of the, the three sets of judgments that, that form the tribulation period. All seven seals have been opened, and the seventh trumpet has been blown, and we're poised now for the final judgments of God to fall on the earth, the, the bold judgments as they're typically called. A few chapters back, just as, as that timeline was inclined to inch forward, with the sounding of that final trumpet, we hit pause again. And we encountered a pause in the event, the, a pause that takes us outside the flow of time to give us a backstory on what has brought mankind to this point of God pouring out his final judgments. We've encountered pauses like this before in our series through Revelation. And, and in this case, we're in the process of looking at, at several backstories to the, the final calamity, scenes that run from chapter 12 through chapter 15 in John's vision. These chapters, when we read them, they, they feel really like small stories. They're just interjected within the larger story. They, they help us see it from various perspectives. Why is God bringing this judgment at this time on these people in, in such a, a complete, absolute fashion? A few weeks ago, we considered chapter 12, where we saw a synopsis of what I called the War of the Dragon. John saw Satan, called the dragon there in that chapter, trying to destroy the nation of Israel to prevent the birth of the Messiah. Obviously, he failed at that endeavor. So then the vision jumped to the midpoint of the tribulation, and John Saul saw Satan at the, the middle of the tribulation expelled from heaven. He will no longer be allowed access before God in his throne room, and, and as a result, he will vent all of his hatred upon God's people. At this point, Satan knows that his time to inflict harm is limited, and, and, and God, we saw, will protect the nation of Israel by and large. The nation will be secluded, and that chapter clothed with Satan, then seeking to make war with the rest of God's people. Last week, we looked at chapter 13, where we met two individuals that will serve as the primary tools for this war that Satan is waging against God's people. We observe Satan as the great imitator trying to fill out an unholy trinity in, in mimicry of, of the, the divine trinity. And he uses these two people to, to do that. Satan has always sought to be like God the Father. And then he brings on an individual on the scene that we meet, the one that John called the, the first beast that will mimic God the Son. This will be the Antichrist. God the God will also allow Satan, well, as part of that mimicking, uh, God will allow Satan to raise this individual from the dead. The second individual is the one God, or one John, rather, called the second beast. And he'll come alongside the Antichrist and establish a worldwide religion that will seek to elevate the, the worship of the Antichrist and Satan. The second beast, the, the false prophet, as he's often called, will connect all aspects of religion and commerce together in the final half of the, the tribulation period. Chapter 13 concluded last week with warnings about the mark of the beast, the mark that would be required to show that, that you worship the beast, but would also be required for commerce. The worshipers of the Antichrist will receive this mark, and that marks them out, indicates that they're his followers, they're worshipers of the Antichrist and Satan. 
having just seen those who worship the false Christ, those who take the mark on their hand, John is immediately shown a, a contrasting scene here as we come into our chapter this evening. In verses 1 through 5 of our chapter, we have a very brief scene where, as John has just seen, those who will worship the Antichrist that receive the mark on their hand or their forehead, now, in contrast to them, we have the worship of the Lamb. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 14 together. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who had not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who followed the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits of God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. We've met the 144,000 before. We, we encountered them back in chapter 7. That's where we first met when they were sealed on their foreheads by an angel. Even in the sealing of these 144, you, you can see the mimicking of Satan where he tries to emulate that seal with those who follow him. This, this seal of the 144,000 on their forehead that marked them as servants of God. As recipients of that divine mark, you may remember back in chapter 7, they were protected from the divine judgments that fell with the, the trumpets being sounded. Now we see this group again. And they're standing before the Lamb on Mount Zion. The where and the when of, of this particular event, remember, we're outside the, the flow of time in the seven-year period, so when and where this event it takes place is not clear. Uh, it could occur when the Lord returns to earth, essentially when he takes his throne in Jerusalem at the end of the seven-year period, at the start of the millennial kingdom. It could be that they're standing in the New Jerusalem watching the Lamb there right after the tribulation wraps up. Another possibility, though, is that this is something that happens in heaven, right before the end of the tribulation. Essentially, at the time frame we're looking at, right before the final judgments fall, all the other things that, that we see in chapters 12 through 15, they're, they're here to help us understand why are these five final judgments coming, why are they occurring, why are they falling now, and how will it lead then to the return of Christ? So it seems reasonable that these five verses that we have right here at this point in chapter 14, where they're given, it seems that they would also serve the purpose of helping us understand how did we get here. Furthermore, verse 3 says that the 144,000 are purchased from the earth, which seems to indicate they're not on the earth at the moment. Yep. So this is possibly where it's at. Um, one of the challenges is that nowhere else in Revelation is Mount Zion referred to being in heaven. It, it always refers to Jerusalem. And, and uh, that makes sense as part of the backstory for the coming of the judgments that, that were shown. While, while the Antichrist has been bearing his, has those bearing his mark, the, the true Christ has those bearing his mark as well. And, and from John's perspective, it seems that he's on the earth at this point, so it's, 
it seems likely that this is happening on the earth. Um, he only hears a voice from heaven in verse 2 rather than seeing the speaker. So personally, I probably lean towards this is happening on the earth at the end of the tribulation. But it could happen either way. As we've had suggested over the last couple of chapters, the 144,000 will likely bear the brunt of the dragon's war during the, the last half of the tribulation period. While the nation of Israel is protected, remember these are 12,000 from every tribe. They're dispersed throughout the earth to, to give witness to Christ. They're the witnesses spreading the gospel message. So they, they have divine protection from the judgments, but it does not appear that they necessarily have divine protection from Satan in, in the way that the rest of the nation has protection. Satan's using the Antichrist, and, and he's seeking to destroy the testimony of all who bear the name of Christ. We, we know there's likely going to be an uncountable, uh, uncountable number of martyrs. We've seen that. And, and these 144,000 will, will surely land on the, the top of the Antichrist hit list. I, I'm sure he would seek them out wherever they're hiding. So whether they can be killed by his persecution or not, that, that's a matter of debate. But, but it would not surprise me if they were all martyrs by the end of the tribulation. If they function essentially as the privileged honor guard when, when Christ returns and, and comes to put down the unholy trinity of Satan. In fact, I, I think that the phrase in verse 4 that these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, that, that phrase even, I think, suggests martyrdom. They've been purchased as the first fruits. They're the first ones to be harvested, the first ones picked. They're, they're glean first. So I, I don't think that suggests that they can wait for Christ to return untouched by the persecution of the Antichrist. I think they are vulnerable. And while others give up their lives, I think these will likewise. Part of the special privilege that these men have, though, is that they're given a new song. Uh, apparently, this is a song that they're alone allowed to sing because of their great service to the Lamb. They're able to sing this song directly to God on his throne with the, the four living creatures and elders listening, whether they do that from earth or in heaven, um, before they return with Christ or, or before the throne through, throughout all eternity. I'll, again, I'll let you speculate on the, the timing of it. The, the point is clear that they hold a, a privileged position a special place because of their service to Christ. Their song demonstrates their special position. I do want to touch on the fact that as we read these first five verses, the words that the 144,000 did not defile themselves with women are a bit shocking there in verse 4. These words clearly communicate that they've remained virgins throughout their service. And we know that for a fact since John even adds, for they have kept themselves chaste. He, he wants to make sure there's no doubt in our mind. So on first reading, those words seem to diminish marriage as an institution. Yet we know that, that God instituted marriage. And, and in several places, God himself affirms through the prophets and the apostles that marriage is good. For that reason, some commentators try to explain this verse away by, by arguing that these men remain spiritually pure, not, not remaining permanent virgins. That, frankly, that argument doesn't cut it. That, that's insufficient. It doesn't do justice to the clear language of the verse. The way that we should understand this verse is that these 
144,000 are so fixed on their mission during this critical time in history that they did not allow themselves to be encumbered with marriage. Instead, they they willingly set aside marriage so that they could give all their energy to, to take the message of Christ to the people on the earth without concern for wife or family when being a a public Christian will result in probable martyrdom. Really, it's, it's the final application of the advice that, that Paul gives the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7, and verses 25 through 35. If you look at that passage, the Corinthian church was, was facing trying times when, when Paul wrote to them. And, and in that case, he, he advised those who were unmarried to remain that so if they could so that they could remain completely focused on serving the Lord. It, it was a unique time when, when there was pressure coming on because of being Christian. Well, surely the, the times that the 144,000 will face in the last half of the tribulation are, are greater than anything that the Corinthian church faced. So, we are to see this is admirable, that they gave themselves fully to their duty, set aside all other options for comfort, and just gave themselves to service to the Lord. So we have this brief glimpse here of those who have the mark of Christ. In contrast to those who have the mark of the Lamb, this 144,000 with the or in contrast to those who have the mark of the beast, this, this 144,000 on Mount Zion, we, we get this brief glimpse, and then John's vision shifts again. He shifts, and he, he sees three angels flying in quick succession, making announcements. In verses 6 through 13, we have the announcements of these angels. The, these angels are flying over the earth. They're, they're making announcements, and, and these announcements give us a preview of the final judgment that, that's coming, the ultimate victory of Christ. These announcements clearly have to come before the bold judgments. It's even possible as we read these announcements that time is starting to flow, that these eagles are the, or these angels rather are the first events as the judgments begin to come, the final judgments. Um, what we'll see in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, in, in chapter 15, is that all they, these announcements all set the stage for the bowls to be poured out very rapidly upon the earth as, as the final blows come down quickly. In, in verse and six, verses 6 and 7, we have the first angel. The first angel gives a call to worship. Look at verse 6. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel that, that probably ties back to the last time we saw an angel back in chapter 12. In verse 7 of chapter 12, we saw Michael and uh, other angels fighting against Satan and, and his demonic followers, expelling them from heaven. We've seen several angels to this point in the book. That's the last time. So another angel just means, okay, we've seen a bunch. Here's, here's another one. And we, we've seen angels blowing the trumpets and so forth. So another angel simply means this is one of like nature to others that John has already seen. This one is, is another angel. This angel 
now is calling out to those who are still alive on the earth. He's calling out the eternal gospel, we're told. Certainly this gospel that he would be calling out, the eternal gospel, is is similar to that being proclaimed in the rest of the New Testament. Remember, the word gospel simply means good news. Um, There is a holy God that all should fear and give glory to. That's the news he's proclaiming. Yeah, unlike what we would normally consider part of the gospel, if you look carefully at verse 7, there, there's no invitation, as we would think of it. There's no, op, there's no invitation to repent. There, there's no mention of Christ's redemptive work. There, there's no call to accept the forgiveness that, that's offered through Christ. All that is included is a call to worship God, the sovereign God who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. The good news that's contained in this message is that there will be no further delay in God's judgment. The hour has come. We should notice that that once again we have a reference here to the fourfold division of humanity. Every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Last week we saw these same divisions of humanity as the the, the groups in which the Antichrist would search for saints throughout all the earth, wherever in any way you could divide humanity up, the Antichrist was trying to make war against them. We also saw them, as I mentioned last week, back in Revelation 5, verse 9, as the divisions from which the Lamb redeemed people, uh, men and women from every division within humanity. Here, once again, we see that division. Now they represent every conceivable division of humanity on earth that will hear the angel's message. There, there's no barrier that will possibly hinder the reception of what this angel is saying. Every person alive on earth will hear his announcement. The hour of God's judgment has come. The call to, to fear God is a call to recognize as, as humanity, as individual people, that you have an accountability before God. It's essentially the same call that the Lord gave in in Luke chapter 12, verse 5. Our Lord said, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's essentially the message the angel is giving. Fear because the hour of judgment is coming. Right behind the first angel, apparently John then sees and hears the second angel who announces uh, the fall of Babylon in verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The succession of one angel after another, it serves to heighten the dramatic impact of the messages. Rather than having the first angel give multiple messages, we have one angel behind the other announcing messages. And each message is building upon the prior one by implying a consequence. God's judgment has come. That means Babylon has fallen. By by now, I expect we understand that when we encounter a past tense form like this announcement, that that doesn't mean that the events already happened. Rather, as we've seen numerous times in this book, when we have a past tense, it's used like this to dramatically announce a, a pending event that is so certain it can be spoken of as already accomplished. Nothing can hold it back at this point. For this announcement to make sense, we need to recognize that this is not 
a reference to the historical city of Babylon. Rather, it's a reference to the future seat of the Antichrist rule. This worldwide capital from which the Antichrist is going to rule the, the world during the last half of the tribulation. Ancient Babylon came to symbolize the, the center of rebellion against God. In, in John's day, when John was writing, it was common for the Christians to refer to Rome under the, the code name Babylon because Rome was the center of rebellion against God. But name Babylon is used in Revelation now as a code word to to refer to this ultimate center of rebellion, where the Antichrist himself sets up his throne. The Antichrist capital from which he conducts his war against the people of God and, and rules over those who worship him. So whether this will be on the site of the ancient city, as some speculate or not, I'll, again, I'll leave that up to you to speculate, and nobody knows. We know it is the center of his reign. The, the point of verse 8 is that the, the rebellion of the Antichrist and his followers, it's come forth from this city. And, and the Antichrist has seen to it that every nation on the earth has joined him in his rebellion. He, he's done that through the religion that centers on him. He's done that through his, his fierce control of the economy. But ultimately, it's the spiritual immorality just as idolatry has always been seen by God, that, that is the culmination of, of rebellion. That's the rebellion that activates God's judgment. Judgment that will come against the great city, and that city will fall. Immediately a third angel follows the second. And the third angel comes with a warning against beast worship. Verse 9, Then another angel, a third one, Followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. The third angel announces a warning in the form of a judgment against beast worshippers, those who receive the mark of the beast, those who bow before the image. If you remember, the second beast creates this image that the false prophet, the second beast, was able to bring to life, or at least the appearance of life, and led the worship against the Antichrist. The third angel says every worshiper of the Antichrist will receive the same wrath that God is pouring out on the Antichrist capital. What causes Babylon to fall is what every individual will experience as well, the wrath of God. Notice in, in verse 10, God's wrath is, is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. That, that means this is unmitigated wrath. There is no grace holding it back. This is God's full wrath. I, I truly cannot comprehend this level of judgment. The, the final judgments will fall without any mercy or grace. God's wrath coming in full strength. 
The, the never-ending result is eternally ongoing torment. Fire and brimstone, we're, we're told in verse 11, smoke going up forever and ever, no rest day or night, unmitigated wrath. Hell, that's what's being described here. Hell is what awaits those who worship the beast. There is no escape. There is no alternative. There is no hope. There is no ending. Souls will not expire at some point in eternity. Rather, they will be punished forever and ever for their rebellion. And yet, I, I want us to, to realize, even as we contemplate this extreme, terrifying punishment, we should still see this mark of, this, the spark there of God's great mercy. We see it because this warning, the, this dire announcement that the angel is, is calling out as he flies it comes before the final judgments fall. God is announcing in advance what will happen to anyone who worships the beast. He is announcing what will happen when there is still an opportunity for people to choose a different path. People can choose God over the Antichrist. They, they can refuse the mark of the beast. They, they can suffer the, the temporal persecution of the Antichrist, but avoid the eternal punishment of God. In fact, John assures us that, that true believers will persevere in their faith and in faithfulness. He says they will keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The warning is still uh, an announcement that there is an option. Of course, John hears a voice from heaven that assures him and tells him to write in his record this revelation that, that anyone who dies at this point in history for their faith is blessed. In fact, at the moment they die for their faith, the, the believer will find rest, he said, so that they find rest from their labors. They'll find rest from the trials of the tribulation. They will complete what they need to complete. In contrast to those who are striving to avoid the trials of the tribulation by, by taking the, the mark of the beast, by worshiping him so that they, they do not face the trials at that moment, those will enjoy no rest whatsoever for all eternity. But those who heed the warning and refuse to bow before the beast, they will rest from their trials the moment that they give their life, and their deeds will follow them. It will not be for naught. John has seen three angels flying here with announcements for the people on the earth. He, he is done hearing announcements for the, the people on the earth, but he's not finished seeing angels yet in, in this chapter. In, in the final verses, his vision shifts again, and, and he sees what I'm calling the judgment harvest. He, he's giving two quick views of, a, of harvest in, in very quick succession. Most likely, these are two perspectives of, of the same event, but that's unclear. Is it, it could be separate, but I believe it's just simply two views of the same thing. In verses 14 through 16, we have the reaping by Christ. Look at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out from the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
John's vision shifts, and, and suddenly he sees Christ himself sitting on a cloud with the victor's crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is the victor's crown. In, in Revelation 12, verse, or Revelation 19, rather, verse 12, when, when Christ comes in the final battle, he's wearing the royal crowns. In Greek, there, there's distinguishing words between crowns for victors and crowns for royalty. In chapter 19, he has the royal crown, but here he has the victor's crown. Clearly, Christ has the right to wear both kinds of crowns. He is the victor, and he is the royal son of God, the Messiah who will reign. As Christ comes here with the victor's crown, he comes on the cloud, and an angel comes out of the temple in heaven and calls out to him. Remember, John's vision perspective has shifted so so now he's able to see things happening in heaven again somehow he he can see that even though he's probably on the earth i don't know where his vision's at at this point but he sees this angel come out this angel announces to christ that at long last the hour has arrived to reap the earth in other words to to give the final judgment and the reason is because now the earth is ripe its wickedness its rebellion is complete you probably can remember when the, the Lord was here for his first mission, when he was here the first time, he, he spoke of this event. And he said, of that day and hour, n- no, now no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. He said that a couple, we see it in Matthew 24, we see it in Mark 12, or Mark 13 rather. He says, no one knows. But now this angel announces, this is the time. Now the time has come. And the father has sent an angel from the temple with word to that effect. Immediately Christ swings his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. The very brevity of the statement there in verse 16 gives us a dramatic portrayal of the suddenness of judgment. When the final judgment comes, it's just sudden. Most likely... This is the event that's spelled out more fully in chapter 19, but what we see here is that Christ will deal with final rebellion with a rapidness that, that conveys almost ease. He sits on his cloud. He's not standing. He's not working. He sits on his cloud. He takes his sickle, and he swings it, and the earth is reaped. That's the reaping of Christ in verses 14 through 16. But lest we think this is some sterile process because it seems kind of removed Christ on his cloud swinging a sickle, we're given another view in the final four verses. Here we have the reaping of the angel. And as I say, I believe this is the same thing from a different perspective. Verse 17, Another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. In Joel 3, verse 13, we're given two views of the final judgment. There, we, in Joel 3, 13, we're, we're told the judgment is like a sickle and a winepress. Well, here it seems like 
John receives two views of Christ's final battle, using both those metaphors again. And in this second view, another angel comes out of the temple with a sharp sickle, and he's prepared to help with the judgment. A second angel, the, the sixth angel, if you keep in count, that, that we've had in this chapter, a second angel in this particular aspect of the vision, the scene, um, tells the first angel to take his sickle and harvest the grapes. The angel does that. He gathers the clusters of grapes. They cuts off the vine. He throws them into a wine press. And we're given the information that this particular wine press is the wrath of God. A very stunning metaphor. What a vivid way of depicting God's judgment. As a, ra- as a wine press where grapes are trampled by God's wrath. The people on earth are the grapes and they are trampled in the wine press of God's wrath. Where this image, this, this metaphor bleeds over into reality is, is really in the final verse when, when what comes out of the wine press is literal blood. We're, we're told that, that the blood will flow outside the city, which is certainly Jerusalem when it, in Revelation when we just have reference to the city. Certainly Jerusalem. We know from the Old Testament that's where the final battle will occur is near Jerusalem. So we're told that it comes out the blood will flow outside the city, and the amount of blood that will flow as God's wrath kills all the rebels of the earth, all the beast worshipers, all those who, who bear the mark of the beast, it will flow into a valley 180 to 200 miles long, depending on how you want to convert the units, and it will rise to the depth of a horse's bridle. Massive amounts of blood. There, there's no way to minimize the gruesomeness of this picture. This is not a sterile event. If anything, our imagination fails to, to comprehend. It, it falls very short of, of actually visualizing the magnitude of death that God's judgment brings. Occasionally, I, I hear people say that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, whereas the God of the New Testament is, is a God of love, as if there are two different gods. All I can conclude is anyone who makes such a foolish comment has never read this chapter. The God of both the Old Testament and the New Testament is a holy God. He is one God. He has lovingly provided a way that that we can come before him in his holiness through the righteousness of his Son. But make no mistake, all who reject his merciful and generous salvation will receive his holy wrath. And let's not forget that the wrath that produces such bloodshed leads into the wrath of fire and brimstone that goes on burning forever and ever. The chapter ends here with the reaping of the angel. If we think about this chapter, we we began seeing those who have the mark of, of God rather than the mark of the beast, worshiping the Lamb. The rest of the chapter was filled with dire warnings of what will fall on all those who choose to worship the beast rather than the Lamb. Their end is fixed. God's wrath is determined. Assuming that that we know Christ as our Savior, we we can certainly rejoice that that we will not face God's wrath as as indicated in John's visions. The, The wrath that we rightly deserve is this wrath, but we can rejoice that it's already been faced by our Savior on the cross. He's already borne it on our behalf. We can also rejoice that that we will not even have to face the persecutions of the Antichrist. 
we, we can have joyful confidence that we will not experience any of the trials and the horrors of the tribulation period. Greater still, though, we can have joyful confidence that we will not experience the eternal terror of hell itself. We're saved by the, the finished work, the, the shed blood of our Savior. Such is not the case, I am sure, for many people we care about, for family and friends. The, the one takeaway that, that should strike us tonight as we consider all the horrors that this chapter is warning about is that we must warn people of the wrath of God before it's too late. We must warn people. We must warn people of the wrath of God before it is too late. How selfish we are if we are confident of our eternal future and then we fail to share with those we care about how they can avoid this future. This future currently lies before all those who have not accepted Christ as Savior. I understand sharing the, the gospel message of Christ is uncomfortable at times. People don't always receive the good news of Christ with welcome arms. Sometimes it's embarrassing as we're mocked by, by those who reject Christ. But look at what the people are facing. Look at the wrath that we've seen in this chapter. Consider that the wrath of God is coming. We must warn people of the wrath of God before it is too late. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've been able to spend time in this word looking at these warnings. And I pray, Father, that these warnings would sober us. Looking around this evening, I believe the people here know that they are saved by the wrath, or from the wrath that is coming through Jesus Christ have the confidence of knowing Christ as Savior. And yet, Father, you have left us here on this earth so that we would be men and women who would warn others of this great wrath. So, Father, my prayer tonight is that you would fill our minds with these images, with the, the, the vivid pictures that you gave John so that we would be motivated to share Christ with those who need to know him so direly at this point. They are facing this dire future unless they bow before Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.